The title of this evening's talk is The Lion's Roar. I'm beginning with some words from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it. Store it up. And thoroughly set it going. The Brahma Viharas, the divine abidings, sometimes called the immeasurables, metta, karuna, mudita, upekka. These perfectly natural, absolutely natural aspects of our humanness. And in that sense, really quite ordinary. And at the same time, extraordinary. Extraordinary capacities of being as they grow and as they deepen through our practice, through our life. Extraordinary in the sense that when they manifest purely in any given moment, And eventually, in their maturity, these qualities, these capacities that manifest from a heart, a mind, from a heart, a mind that's at peace. Qualities that are present in a heart, a mind that's liberated, that's awakened. As I mentioned earlier in the retreat in relationship to mudita, the seeds of all the divine abodes have been planted over and over and over again within us throughout our lifetime. Every time someone has offered love, has offered friendship, has offered kindness with no strings attached, even in seeming small, insignificant ways, a seed of metta was planted. Every time we've been cared for, attended to, when we've been sick or hurting physically, or when we've been in some way in emotional pain and been attended to, been cared for, seeds of compassion were sown during those times. Whenever someone was happy for us, rejoiced with us when we felt good or accomplished something, seeds of mudita were planted. When someone was there for us with a calm, steady, and even-minded strength in the midst of some upheaval inside us or in a particularly difficult situation, Seeds of equanimity were sown. Each of these seeds sown over and over again through our life. And as they take deeper root and grow and flower and fruit, any one of us may experientially touch, know, the purity of metta, karuna, any one of the divine abidings, at any moment, maybe sustaining for just the duration of the snap of a finger, or maybe abiding more continuously. The mind, the heart, free of ill will, the heart's release, 
the Buddha spoke about this as making one a truly spiritual person. All of these energies of the Brahma-viharas have been spoken about to some degree during this retreat. So this evening we'll explore just a few particulars about each of these immeasurable threads and also look at how they weave together, supporting, sustaining, and balancing each other, creating a tapestry of clear, deeply connected, fearless, and appropriate responsivity. This growing capacity to respond rather than reacting to whatever life offers. Responding as best we can from the wisdom of what's been called immeasurable impartiality meaning the capacity to impartially embrace all beings, and not just those that we're close to in our lives, those who it's easy to care about, but the possibility of impartially embracing those that it might be more difficult, including all beings, a wider, more inclusive connection possible. This is from Krishnamurti's meditation journal. When the heart enters into the mind, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. So, metta. Metta really being the ground, the bed that all of the other Brahmaviharas spring from. And the capacity of heart, the capacity of mind, that really allows the whole breadth of our practice to unfold. To unfold from and into this core, this bed of kindness and patience, really such an essential ground of our awakening process. In truth, there's no real mindfulness without metta. There's no true metta without mindfulness. When I was in China in the mid-1980s, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the word or the symbol for love was breath through the heart or breathing through the heart, metta. I remember... uh, some years ago, when I was practicing uh, quite a bit with Saida Upandita, he said that most people think that everything begins and ends here, and he'd knock himself on the head. 
And then he said, but I've been checking for a long, long time. (laughs) And he said that I found that everything begins and ends here. And he'd thump himself on the chest at the heart center. Everything begins and ends here, he'd say. Seems so. I haven't been checking as long as him, but it seems so. When we practice metta, we're moving towards or inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, of the mind. And using the metaphor of the breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's an intangible, boundless, empty, and yet powerful energy that moves within us and from us. Gandhi called it the most powerful and most subtle force in the universe. So again, asking, what is it? What is this metta? In the classical Buddhist definition, it's talked about as non-ill will, the absence of ill will in relation to ourself, our body, our mind, however they manifest from moment to moment, and the absence of ill will towards others. Non-ill will. No aversion. No pride. No conceit. Metta is impersonal in nature. Impersonal even in relationship to what we think of, what we're attached to in a positive or negative way as ourself our body, our thoughts, our ideas, our opinions, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relation to other beings, even in relation to to those we know well, to those we're close to. The heart, the mind of metta connects, accepts. It's non-critical, it's non-judgmental. Metta has absolutely no interest in comparing or fixing. It really allows things to be just as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, of patience, of acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As we practice in the very specific ways that we are in this retreat, the Vipassana practice and the various Brahma-Vihara practices, there's, as I'm sure you've experienced, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart of the mind, slowly, slowly, and sometimes quickly, from fear, from states of anger, from judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong energies that move through our mind, through our heart, through our body, begin to unwind. They begin to weaken. They begin to fade. They begin to dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta and mindfulness. Someone once asked Nisargadatta Maharaj, who, as many of you may know, he taught through dialogue with his students. Someone once asked him, what can make me love? And his answer was, you are love when you're not afraid. 
You are love when you're not afraid. And something that was amazing to me and really quite important for me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't depend on liking someone. It doesn't depend on approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which with we might not agree with, beneath things we may not condone. Metta is accepting in a very deep, universal level, but not necessarily approving. And with metta, there are no favorites. There's no favoring one over another with metta. So it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It really brings things together. It's goodwill. Goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. The most subtle, the most powerful force in the universe. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and it's unconditional. No conditions needed for metta to manifest. Reflecting on this for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, I think this world would have flown apart broken apart long ago. And it seems that there have been periods throughout human history up to this very moment when there have been more, when there's been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful time. Time of relative ease in the world or periods of increasing unsettled, settledness, more violent time. This powerful energy of goodwill that brings things together. If there was no metta in this world, it seems that this world would have flown apart, broken apart long ago. And the Buddha tells us that hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This afternoon I noticed in the staff dining room a quote on the altar table from Dina Metzger, which I'd like to share with you. There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. There is no time to not love. There's no time to not love. I think that most of us usually expect metta to be a feeling. We look for some felt sense. And, of course, in our looking, our expectation is based on something that we're familiar with. It's pretty hard, if not impossible, to look for something that we don't know. Sometimes metta may manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught, we can get stuck in this expectation. It's actually quite limiting. 
the heart, the mind that's free from ill will, that's free from fear, from hatred, from greed, from anger, in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in the absence of aversion, in the absence of greed. It's in this abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling of what we think of and are familiar with as love. There's a great power, a great strength in the capacity to connect within ourselves and to connect to others, to connect directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart, that's rooted in mindfulness and free of ill will. And we could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. So can we begin, as Krishnamurti says, without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence? As we practice and learn and metta begins to flower in us, we also begin to understand in our bones, or cellularly, as one friend said to me, that metta is really the ground that compassion springs from. There's no compassion without metta. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya. It's the story of Sariputra's lion's roar that really shows this clearly. And it takes place just after the completion of the uh, three-month rains retreat. And the monks were dispersing for their various duties and various responsibilities in other places. I'd like to share this sutta with you. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anattapindika's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputra approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to the Blessed One, he sat down to one side and said to him, Lord, I have now completed the rain's retreat at Savati and wish to leave for a country journey. The Blessed One replied, Sariputra, you may go wherever, you, whenever you are ready. The Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, saluted the Blessed One, and keeping him to his right, departed. Soon after the, ven- the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk said to the Blessed One, The Venerable Sariputra hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Then the Blessed One called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you, Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda, taking the keys, went around the monk's lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come. For today the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputra approached the Blessed One and after saluting him, sat down to one side. When he was seated, the Blessed Blessed One said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. The Venerable Sariputra responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Rahula was the Buddha's son. To Bhikkhu Rahula when he was 18 years old. 
You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air, in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the body, and is not present, may well hit a fellow and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced like the earth. When people throw clean substances such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood, Yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, no loathing or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present, may well hit a fellow and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him, and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. And yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, no loathing or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry. I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and unpure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the body, the positions of the body in the body, the feelings in the feelings, the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village or town with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like that of an untouchable youth, a heart that is humble, vast, exalted and measureless, without hostility, without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow and go on without apologizing. Lord, I'm not such a monk. Sariputra continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat arranging his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Blessed One, saying, 
Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused the venerable Sariputra falsely, wrongly, untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Blessed One responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and made amends, we pardon you. It is a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. The Blessed One then turned to the Venerable Sariputta and said, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. (laughs) I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk asks for my pardon, as I, too, may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding. He he, He, too, may forgive me. Sariputta and the accused monk, accusing monk, then bowed three times to each other and reconciled. As we know, one aspect of the practice of metta, of karuna and mudita, is working with difficult people, individuals, and even possibly groups. Classically, and maybe for us somewhat dramatically, this is called working with the enemy, which actually is what it felt like in my own practice one particular time. And it was the first time that I did an extended period of practice with metta, a five-week period of practice. It came time in my practice to bring in the difficult person. And somewhat contrary to the teacher's instruction to pick someone that was mildly irritating, I picked for what for me at that time felt like the most difficult person in my life a burningly difficult person. It wasn't a person that I knew well or that I had known for very long, but circumstances were such that not long before I went into this particular retreat, I'd had a few weeks of a fair amount of contact with this person. And I was still going over and over and over it in my mind, continuing to feel the burn of it, and actually this with this somewhat obsessive thinking, unmindfully continuing to perpetuate the pain. So to make a long story short, a few days into my retreat or my practice with the difficult person, for those few first beginning days with this particular aspect of practice, my very visual mind couldn't bring up an image of this person no matter how much I tried. Until one day, she appeared as a very, very tiny figure up at the top of a very long, dark stairway, which was at that point probably close enough for me and uh, maybe close enough for her also. And I persevered. I just kept practicing. One day I decided I would practice during lunchtime, and I took her to lunch. And I promptly got a stomach ache. <laughs> and so at that point I took my teacher's advice, who said, leave her be during lunch, <laughs> which I did. <laughs> I gently but very steadily kept on with the practice. And at one point, this difficult person, my enemy, appeared in full view, not literally, but 
as an image, appeared in very full view. And in that moment, a connection happened. Soon after this, let me just say a little bit about the connection. Um, It wasn't a feeling of love uh, as I'd known it. It wasn't like how I feel about my children or my dearest friends. But there was, it's just that there was at that moment no more ill will. There was this very clear, unfettered connection, very clear, unfettered space and connection. Soon after this, Tears came. And a knowing that this person had acted as she had, had acted with such insensitivity and such meanness because she herself was suffering greatly. And it felt like my heart cracked open in that moment. My heart moved from that clear, connection of metta and broke open into compassion. I had a view of the whole picture. Not just me appearing in center stage of the scene. And in that instant, my suffering ended my suffering in relationship to that person. And of course, the whole situation had passed weeks before. And my suffering was in keeping it, in holding on to it in my mind with me at center stage and feeling like a victim, feeling helpless, and having no confidence, no strength of heart, feeling very alone, feeling very separate disconnected. But in that instant of the unfettered, clear connection and the opening, the cracking open to compassion, in that instant, my suffering ended in relationship to that particular person. And I learned something beyond that moment also. The understanding that our practice and the fruit of our practice isn't an isolated, separate thing just for us becomes very clear and obvious to us over and over and over again. The arising of metta, of karuna, of mudita begins to let us know that we're not alone, that in fact we're totally and intimately interwoven into this intricate, endlessly changing, reflective web of life. And that, in fact, we are practicing for the sake of all beings. Shanti Deva, the 8th century Buddhist monk who wrote A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life that Joseph mentioned recently, Shantideva talked about the bodhisattva's vow to achieve awakening for the sake of all living beings, which is really the vow of compassion. He talked about this vow as being an inevitable consequence of the gradual development and maybe sudden eruption of unconditional love, of metta, of compassion into one's life. In following the Buddha's advice to practice and to learn to let go, to live in and with the way of things, to abide in the interconnectedness, in the total contingency, the selfless nature of all things, we actually open ourselves, as Shanti Deva says, to the possibility of an unpredictable explosion of feeling. The blossoming of metta, 
compassion, and mudita changes our view of the world, which includes our view of ourself. Our view, the way that we feel about the world and how we relate to the world, transforms. Shantideva talks about the beauty and the joy and the anguish, the suffering being open to. And this opening naturally prompting a spontaneous wish to assuage the suffering of others. In a long retreat like this, we have the opportunity to begin to see how our self-centeredness the smallness, the pettiness of our self-centered ideas, fantasies, can create a sense of isolation, actually creates a sense of separateness. And being in a place like this, with the natural world right at our doorstep, for me and I think probably for most of you, spending some time out in the world of nature. For instance, doing some walking meditation in the forest or by the pond. We might experience a sense of wholeness, a sense of connection, maybe a sense of one-withness or what's sometimes called just-isness. the world out there just as it is, providing us with the mirror of what Stephen Batchelor calls the sublime selflessness of the natural world, which I've found over and over and over again through the years helps to put things into a clear and right perspective. And again from Shantideva. Just as these arms and legs are seen as limbs of a body, why are embodied creatures not seen as limbs of life? With the awakening heart of metta and karuna and mudita, the divisive, the separating notions of me, you, them, what we fix, the fixed conceptual distinctions that we make of me, of mine, of you and them, these distinctions, these conceptual distinctions begin to dissolve. Dissolve in the way that we go about our life, the way that we live our life, how we relate in this life. A spontaneous, empathetic response begins to emerge quite naturally. Empathetic response to the sufferings and to the joys of life. And once again from Shantideva. I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. And I should be good to them because they feel just as I do. When both they and I are the same in wanting joy and not desiring pain, what's so special about me? When I act for the sake of others, no amazement or conceit arises. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. Our human heart is naturally, intuitively loving and compassionate. So from this perspective, our practice isn't about working to get to attain something, but rather it's about allowing, allowing our mind, our heart, through our practice, be it Vipassana or any of the Brahma-Vihara practices, allowing our heart to 
be loving kindness itself. So from this perspective, we can turn right around and face the heart of awareness itself and ask, who loves? Who loves? There is metta. There is karuna. It's not me. It's not mine. It's not who I am. It belongs to no one. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar. And it's inexhaustible. As we persevere through our practice, there's a deepening self-confidence, a deepening self-respect, a gentle and yet powerful strength and growing pervasive selflessness that begins to manifest. Our capacity to meet the vicissitudes of life face on with sensitivity and a deeper wisdom begins to expand. Not long ago, I read a book that was recently written by a 102-year-old black man named George Dawson, an autobiography, really. And just a little bit of background about George. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas and is the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support the family. So he never was able to attend school, and so he never learned how to read. Until just a few years ago, at the age of 98, when he decided to attend a literacy program. And then he wrote a book. (laughs) And it's an amazing and inspiring and quite illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. At one point in the book, George is having a conversation with Richard, the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together about how George, who at the age of 101, is still living alone and, as George says, doing just fine. So I'd like to share a little bit of this conversation. This is Richard speaking. You aren't alone. People call and come by all day long. But there's a, there's a community of people who cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George, that's right, you figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do that because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard, that sounds like a riddle. George, that does, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard, what goes around comes around. George, that's right, it all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while is all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It will make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest man can take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can. And if you have nothing... Pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. For much of his life, George endured the deeply pervasive racism and segregation in the South. During the years when he was growing up in East Texas, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And the book begins with George at about eight years old, witnessing the lynching of a teenage boy who was one of his heroes. In another section from the book, George talks about when he was 65 years old 
and was doing yard work for a woman who left his lunch on the back porch with her dogs. And these are George's words. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on a shelf that was above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there up on the shelf for me. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat on the porch with her dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted. But I weren't no animal, and I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way, and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, just when I was finishing my work, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch I left on the porch? Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you, I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn, didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could sense a hundred years of anger and fear coming towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, You don't need to come back anymore. I said, That's right. I don't need to. And George continues on for us. I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you might react to it. George Dawson's Lion's Roar. As each of these capacities, these Immeasurable threads, metta, karuna, mudita, emerge, grow, and mature within us. The strong and growing thread of equanimity, the unshakable mountain, as it's sometimes called, the thread of wisdom. It weaves through, it clarifies, it brings balance, support. It helps to sustain all of the divine abidings. Equanimity, the capacity to embrace, to hold all things, all of life impartially, just as it is in the moment. Upeka is the thread that weaves this beautiful tapestry into wholeness and wisdom. Equanimity is the thread that keeps metta and karuna from getting lost weakened in what might be vain or unnecessary or maybe even useless involvements. It guards loving kindness. It guards loving kindness and compassion from getting stuck, miring, getting lost in some of the sometimes seeming deep pits of difficult, uncontrollable emotional states. The balance, the even-mindedness of upeka brings to metta a balanced, firm, steady loyalty. Equanimity also provides metta and compassion with this great virtue of patience. With the thread of upeka woven into compassion, there's a steady, 
unwavering courage, fearlessness, a calm, strong heart available during acts of compassion. When mudita gets carried away with itself in its own over-exuberance and we're not able to see the whole of a situation or sense what might be someone's painful feelings or changing feelings. It's the thread of equanimity that weaves and balance, weaves balance back in. As each of these strands, these threads, weave and grow together, creating a tapestry of clear, deeply connected, appropriate and fearless responsivity, we practice and live more and more from the place of confidence, straightforwardness, and strength. This tremendous fullness of energy that the Buddha called the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power of his words was born out of loving kindness, great compassion, and deep wisdom. I'd like to close the talk with a story about a young Native American woman, Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. Sue Ann was born on March 15th in 1974 at the Pine Ridge Hospital on the Pine Ridge Reservation. She grew up with her sisters in her mother's three-bedroom house on Pine Ridge. And even today, people talk about what a strict mother chick Big Crow was. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities that she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind. Unsupervised wanderings and later cruising around in cars were completely out. In an interview when she was a teenager, Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chip Chick Big Crow was and is strongly anti-drug and alcohol. On the reservation, Chick has belonged for many years to the small but very adamant minority that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, She was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her until the grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became opposed to drug and alcohol as much as her mother was, and she would give talks on the subject to school and youth groups and made a video using her message in a very stern and wooden tone to high schoolers around the country. A friend of the family, Rob Bradford, was asked once if it wasn't risky for Sue Ann to be such a public advocate against alcohol since it was so prominent in the life of the reservation. And his answer was, you have to understand, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. By coming out against drinking, I know that she flat out saved a lot of kids' lives. In fact, she even had an effect on me. It dawned on me that if a 16-year-old girl could have the guts to say these things, then maybe us adults should pay attention too. I haven't had a drink since the day she died. As strongly as Chick forbade certain activities, she encouraged the girls in sports. And at one time, they did all of all the sports, cross-country running, track, volleyball, cheerleading, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling You could bounce a basketball. You should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. So she performed this task daily. 
very faithfully on the cement floor of the patio, which her mother and sister got very tired of. (laughs) So for variety, she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. So Anne used to get into trouble in basketball games, as the referees rule very strictly in tournament games, and Sue Ann was used to a more headlong style of play. In the district playoff against the Red Cloud team, Sue Ann scored 31 points. Some people who live in the cities and towns near reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. In their voices, you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous, and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted. Their fans will feel unwelcome. The host gym will be dense with hostility, and the referees will call foul on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams used to get harassed regularly was in the high school gymnasium in Lead, South Dakota. In the fall of 1988, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to, Ale- went to Lead to play a basketball game. So Anne was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman. She was 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the Lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries, a kind of woo-woo-woo sound. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, taking a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to the bench at courtside. After the home team, after that, then the home team would come out and do the same thing, and the game would begin. Usually the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, who was the tallest, would go first. As the team waited in the hallway, Leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder and louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservation receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be for some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and some bumped into each other. Coach Zamega at the rear of the line didn't know why they'd stopped. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. Then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, draped it over her shoulders, and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all the traditional dances. She'd competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful, modest, and show-offy, all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get-down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. She began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, 
and using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. The crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie to Corey, ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. The audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted to the basket, went up in the air, and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering loudly now. Of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said, I cannot find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Ladd. And I agree. The lions roar. Let's sit together for a moment. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it. Store it up. And thoroughly set it going. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.